Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Once a year, something very special happens. No, I'm not talking about the federal budget. That's never a special thing. But what is special is a special on liberty from the CIS budget bunker. Simon Cowan here, Research Director, filling in for your usual host, Salvatore Babonas. He is preparing for his event tonight on universities. Definitely check that out if you've got some time. I am also joined by a very special guest, Michaela Novak. She is uh, one of Australia's leading classical liberal economists. She has done uh, some excellent work in her first PhD in relation to uh, government spending and fiscal policy. She's also looked at issues around um, uh, inequality. She's now getting a second PhD in, so in sociology, which I think makes her uh, exceptionally qualified to join me in the CIS Budget Bunker. Michaela, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to be able to chat with you, Simon, and thank you for welcoming me in the bunker. As, as I get older, and, and just to start with a little anecdote, as I get older and the longer that I've spent at the CIS coming in 10 years now, I always like to point out people who have been around the CIS for longer than me. You were saying that you first uh, came across the CIS back in 1996 when you attended uh, one of our Liberty and Society conferences. Uh, that's right. So I had the, the great privilege and honour to be able to attend the second uh, Liberty and Society Conference in Sydney in July 1996, back in the day. Um, but I actually have to say that my um, encounters with the CIS actually preceded uh, that time when I was an undergraduate student trying to learn about the fundamentals of free markets and cl classical liberalism, basically in isolation in the, in the University of Queensland Library, where I had the very good fortune of coming across the, the excellent uh, erstwhile uh, policy journal um, that was produced by the CIS. So, um, you know, a long association, a very happy one, and um, that, that association I have for the CIS, including through that program, is something I always uh, honour and cherish uh, as being quite important in, in the formulation of my own thinking. Well, and speaking of LNS, that brings us rather neatly to the budget. I think our uh, treasurer has had some associations there too. Uh, look, I think everyone's going to give the political take on the budget today from what I've seen so far and, and even, you know, the, the quick take last night. I want to start first with, with say, the economic big picture here. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of what's in the budget is very short term. It's aimed at you know, a, a number of the, the major measures are, are designed to expire within six months. Talk to me about some of that bigger picture thinking. Is there anything in the budget that points to a longer term plan or strategy here, particularly from the fiscal side? Um, I have very great regret to actually say that from a true liberal, classical liberal perspective, uh, the, the budget is actually quite a disappointment. And I also follow up by saying that there, there is no real indication of any sort of long term strategic uh, thinking or posturing towards the need for uh, what I would argue is the urgent need for supply side reforms uh, to essentially expand the productive envelope of the Australian economy and to be able to sort of wind back um, some of the uh, some of the sort of spending which is now very much entrenched uh, in the budget a lot of the 
um, a lot of the sort of the changes that we might see in the forward estimates in the budget are really solely attributed to uh, parameter assumptions that are made uh, with respect to, let's say, commodity prices or uh, you know, projected employment uh, into the future. And we have to appreciate that the future is unknowable. Um, so I think, you know, uh, I might sound quite cynical in suggesting that maybe one can't really take great store in the actual accuracy or the veracity of the forward estimates. Uh, I think interp in interpreting a budget, one really has to look at, you know, this as much as the, the policy was geared toward the short term, uh, the sort of the short term uh, history of uh, sort of fiscal and budgetary activity by government. And um, as you are alluding to, there is a lot of spending, short term measurements baked in uh, to yeah. shift electoral rather than uh, sort of uh, fiscal or economic sustainability objectives. And, and I think we can we can dig into that a little bit. I mean, I think yeah. there's a whole bunch of other stuff there that I want to get to around forecasts and parameters in particular. But, but let's start, I think, with the spending side of things. Obviously, during the pandemic, we saw that massive spike in government spending went up to above 31% of GDP. Um, we are seeing now that the forward estimates and the sort of medium-term projections are that government spending is going to sit above that 26% level uh, more or less indefinitely. Uh, what we saw, if you go back 10, 15 years, we saw Howard government spending was was well below that level, even for the supposedly spendthrift years of the government. We saw, you know, an average of government spending that was probably below 25%. What we've seen historically is that similar pattern that government spending expands significantly during a crisis. And then when it recedes post-crisis, it, it sits at a level that was noticeably higher than it was before. Uh, is there anything, first of all, how far back do you think that pattern extends? But secondly, is there anything that we can we can do about that and that we could encourage the government to do about that to try and reverse that ratchet? Look, uh, the, the ratchet effect is quite a ubiquitous and pervasive phenomenon in the history of Australian public finances. One can go stretching back to World War II, even World War I, where we actually see, even to this day, um, certain policies, uh, certain initiatives, for example, the development of the welfare state during World War II, basically remain in place much, much longer after the crisis event has occurred. And so the short-termism of um, this budget is very much exemplified by the perception of um, this decade so far, and even probably last 15 years, going back to the GFC, uh, being punctuated by rolling crises. And so that is tended to sort of limit the time horizon of policy deliberation and policy making to just thinking about the here and now and just thinking, wishing, hoping and praying that uh, the, the crisis will abate. Um, but of course, uh, you have uh, an underlying political dynamic where uh, the ratcheting effect takes place because once a new spending initiative, including increased spending, takes hold or is announced, you will have the formation of political constituencies whose task, among other things, is to actually defend um, that spending, even grow it and take political credit for uh, such events. So uh, the ratchet effect uh, takes hold. Uh, in terms of how to prevent it, um, always take the sage advice of Peter Costello in the sense that uh, if you wish to avoid the ratchet effect of um, governmental spending and the increase in size and scope 
of government. Uh, try not to introduce programs in the first place. Now, that gets us to much broader uh, issues in our political economy in terms of community adaptability and self-reliance in terms of managing crises, uh, how we expand the, the domain of the market sector to ensure that there's inclusive flourishing for all so that people actually have uh, something in their kitty, so to speak, to be able to handle uh, and accommodate change without asking for uh, government to compensate or um, this is never included in any budgets uh, or to regulate in order to try to halt uh, the, the sources of change. Um, so yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Right? What we're seeing is a re-emergence. I mean, the pandemic is obviously quite a novel experience, but we're seeing the re-emergence of inflation, something that, that took decades to, to bring back under control. It has uh, probably the, the bigger problem in terms of inflation for the last 10 to 15 years has been under inflation. You know, Australia came into the global financial crisis with inflation above the target band, but since then it's largely sat at the bottom of the band or below it. We now see expectations of inflation um, above 4% for this year. The, the, the budget, I think, rather hopefully suggests it'll go back to 3%. Um, the government has... You know, there's a there's sort of a, a competing pressure here. In the one sense, they feel obliged to take action on cost of living. The other sort of side of that coin, though, is that whatever the government does in terms of handing out extra money, be it $250 to seniors or $450 um, as the final bonus of Lomito, uh, those actions themselves may drive even further inflation. Um, part of the problem, as you were sort of identifying there, I think, is that government has become the first and final place where action on any social problem occurs. In this instance, um, inflation, uh, that's combating inflation really is and should be the job of the RBA. But as I think, you know, as I said, undershot previously and is, is primed to overshoot now. Um, RBA should be dealing with inflation and cost of living pressures should be flowing through into higher wages. What's the government doing intervening here? Uh, no, that's a that's a very good question, and you're touching on a very broader concern, which was actually touched upon by the famous economist James Buchanan back in 2005, where he expressed a concern that increasingly government uh, tends to stand in a position of loco parentis with respect uh, to uh, to the citizen, uh, and consistent with that, it seems that. Um, the sort of the production and the dissemination of understandings about social problems and inflation being an important problem uh, somehow, uh, but I think this is very contestable, but somehow implies that government is the first uh, sort of source um, of uh, sort of resolution. Um, I'm, I'm actually quite critical of the sort of the, the, the stance of government here uh, all round in terms of provoking inflation. Uh, so, you know, essentially... Uh, you know, putting aside uh, the Reserve Bank's uh, very expansive monetary policy, which I think is a, a major and serious problem, um, we have to recognise and thinking about sort of budgets as, a, as an opportunity to look back. Uh, we don't have to look too far back to understand that uh, some of the, a lot of the domestic sources of price inflation are actually policy-induced. We had pandemic responses, which essentially... Um, smashed the production structure of the Australian economy. 
um, you know, I'm afraid to say that th these are actually policy-induced measures. And now we have uh, international pressures as a result of conflict, which are raising uh, commodity prices for uh, for staples, and and these are going to flow through. I'm all I share with you uh, my scepticism about uh, the veracity of the short-term forecasts uh, by the government with respect to price inflation. After all, if the unemployment rate is going to creep below four percent, below the the Nairu rate, uh, without um, accelerating inflation, then why is it that uh, in the short term the forecast for price inflation is going to be lower? as of now. So something something is amiss. Uh, is the government actually not announcing a massive supply side reform, which will actually reduce uh, pressure on well, prices? Perhaps the government's so, assuming that? that the RBA um, will raise interest rates, but they don't actually uh, yeah. say that because that they, would be a negative uh, for their uh, election pitch. Uh, I, I think you know, let's. I'd be interested to dig a little bit more into some of these forecasts. As you mentioned, um, the really good news that the Treasurer was very keen to emphasise in the budget speech was that unemployment is expected to fall below 4%. Um, some people are predicting that it could go as low as 35 The budget restricts itself to 3.75 um, in the near term. That is the lowest level of unemployment in 50 years. Um, the last time that we saw unemployment anywhere near that level, I think, was 2008 when we got to 4%. At that point in time, inflation was sitting about where it is now, but wage growth was two or three times what it is now. Um, how much of these forecasts, you know, you talked about Russia and the Ukraine, we've talked about mm. COVID. To what extent is the enormous uncertainty around these forecasts potentially a problem? Um, I mean, they have to be a problem because essentially what uh, everyday Australians are experiencing now uh, is, is essentially uh, extreme and incommensurable complexities and uncertainties of significant scale. And it must surely uh, so compromise the ability of any government, federal, state, local, any other government around the world to be able to accurately forecast using, I must say, their toy models uh, uh, with regards to future projections about the macroeconomic uh, state of the, the economy. Um, and uh, so so one has to really sort of question uh, those, uh, the, the, the sort of the future, the, the parameters that are set in uh, with reg regards to the forward estimates. Um, and there and, is a, and there's a significant number of people, I think, who are already questioning that wage growth forecast. Yeah, um, I think, you know, there's there's certainly a legitimate perspective from history that says the government's been forecasting wage growth in every budget since it was elected, and we haven't really seen that yet. Uh, my sense of it, though, is that it's going to be different this time. Given the unemployment rate, you know, if you're coming into the pandemic in 2019, unemployment was slowly drifting up, inflation was was low, um, you know, we had a whole bunch of other pressures on, uh, on the supply side in terms of declining productivity. Those are the sort of circumstances where you wouldn't expect to see significant wage growth. The figures in the budget that we have now with inflation high, unemployment extremely low, there, if that doesn't flow through into real wage increases, doesn't that indicate a far bigger problem uh, in terms of our understanding of the economy? Um, look, I would have to agree in the sense that the um, underlying the numbers, 
right? And the numbers are just an artifice. Underlying those numbers are, are immense structural changes. Some of these enforced recently as a result of pandemic responses in the Australian economy. Uh, we uh, we understand that the, the structure of the labour market has changed uh, towards contractualisation and, and flexibility. I believe that most Australians actually welcome uh, those sort of flexibilities, but they do have uh, sort of implications for our understanding as to uh, sort of the, the transmission between wages and price inflation, uh, for example. So uh, I think what you say does have uh, a lot of credence. So we, we do have to recognise that uh, the, the, the labour market that might have been subject to Treasury predictions and projections even 10 years ago is vastly different to that today. And also understand there are other um, dynamics at place as well. We still have post-pandemic a relatively closed economy. Yes, we might have some uh, sort of farm visa uh, sort of stays out in the regions, but by and large, uh, Im immigration will probably likely be constrained uh, for a while yet. That's another sort of factor that uh, one has to uh, think about as well, as well as overall population growth as well. Thank you. You're joining me, Simon Cowan, in the CIS Budget Bunker, filling in for Salvatore Babonis. I'm with Michaela Nova here talking about last night's budget. Um, we're just getting involved in the discussion around the forecasts. Um, one thing that I'm interested also to talk about in relation to the, the forecasts in particular is, is the forecast of a massive improvement in the budget bottom line. We're seeing the parameters of the, the budget, which is basically the non-discretionary components of, of, of your fiscal policy here. Um, they have changed very significantly in the government's favour. There's a $130 billion improvement across the forward estimates in the budget bottom line. The government, however, has spent about 25 to $30 billion of that, most of it in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, so that the overall improvement is closer to, to $100 billion. Um, that then means that our net debt figure actually peaks at about 860 rather than, than the closer to the trillion dollar mark. But there is still a lot of uncertainty, isn't there, Michaela, about those projections and the extent to which that budget repair will actually occur? Um, the, the extent of the uncertainty with regards to the projections are not limited to uh, the, the, the natural uncertainties about the macroeconomic state of the economy. Uh, one could actually question the veracity of uh, the forward estimates and the projections of declining deficits just on the basis of understanding political dynamics. Uh, what we have uh, in this Europeanisation of Australian public finance uh, of scope and especially scale are sort of two uh, sort of contradicting sort of dynamics. You have on one hand what I would you know, call for argument's sake, a giftocracy where uh, constituencies are identified and spending endowments are allocated to uh, those identified constituencies to resolve any range of political or social problems. So you have the giftocracy dynamic on one hand, but then on the other, uh, you have what I would call a vetoocracy dynamic on the other, where 
you know, think in, in the spirit of the ratchet effect, once new spending promises are made, it's very difficult to, to wind them back. And interest groups will organise uh, in such a way uh, to, to lobby for the retention of those. So, you know, to the extent, now there's a lot of talk about the short-termism of spending measures in the budget, but let's just watch and see over the next few months, six, eight months, just to see what kinds of pressures uh, of those sort of two counteracting dynamics um, in place and what that for forebodes in terms of budget bottom line. Will will a future government concede on, you know, some of the, uh, for example, the, the welfare uh, measures announced last night? Um, th this is an, an inherent political dynamic. It's very difficult for governments to resist the temptation to embed favouritism uh, in terms of subsidy and, and, and tax privileges and whatnot. So look out for that because that will have um, potential effects in compromising those um, budget bottom line estimates in the in the Ford estimates over the next four years. Well, and there's, there's problems on both sides of politics there. I mean, the, the Liberal yeah. Party are in power at the moment, but mm. no one should kid themselves that this is a problem limited to the Liberals. Uh, you know, from the, the Labor perspective, if there is a change of government in May, there'll be a lot of pressure from Labor interest groups, in particular the unions, who have endured 10 years of opposition to uh, for the government to reward those constituencies. They might put it as uh, you know, properly funding areas that were underfunded by the coalition. But we also saw last night that the coalition invested uh, a, a lot of top-line dollars in infrastructure spending in regional areas in particular uh, that looks like the sort of, you know, the, the interest group spending in relation to, to the National Party. Um, what's your sense, what's your take on this continual desire of government to announce the largest ever infrastructure spending in any budget that they've, I think, done in five or six of the last seven, last nine budgets? Uh, we are encouraged as uh, observers of the public fisc to concentrate on the, the macro bottom line measures. But I would actually make an argument uh, for interpreting the, the budget at the meso level. That is to say, to think about the budget as a nexus of contracts right, to favoured constituencies. And obviously, uh, there's some speculation that as a price for the government pursuing uh, a net zero objective by 2050, that part of that price was to provide even up to well, $18, 20000000000 billion uh, over the Ford estimates to infrastructure in the regions. Um, I think a, a, a key to long-term reform in the budget is to actually deal uh, head on uh, as best as we can and as, as difficult as it might be with uh, this departure from generality in fiscal settings where particular interest groups are benefited at the expense of current taxpayers and also future generations because even much of the recurrent spending is being financed by borrowings, uh, which you know our children and grandchildren must pay for. Um, I, I think a, a central element of the budget reform that must happen it has to happen at some point. Uh, you can't sort of suspend uh, a budget as if defying gravity. And part of that reform has to be, you know, tackling the lack of generality, the lack of equal fiscal treatment of citizens in the budget uh, in favour of these particular constituencies. And on the infrastructure spending, of course, there are additional concerns over and above above the lack of generality and fiscal treatment. Um, where are the cost-benefit analyses? Uh, attached uh, to these spending programs. The public 
uh, the taxpayers are deserving ethically and morally of uh, being able to see um, all of the, the requisite modelling and the estimations that were arrived in um, deciding uh, those allocations. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and, you know, I think the criticisms that the government has received that a large number of the projects that it's funding are not actually recommended by bodies like Infrastructure Australia. But I think even more generally, there is a real problem that a lot of government spending is not properly evaluated prior to being undertaken. And almost none of it is properly evaluated after it's being undertaken. One of the things the government announced last night was an expansion of the paid parental leave scheme. One thing that we do know about the paid parental leave scheme is the overwhelming majority of people who receive benefits from paid parental leave are being paid to do something they would have done anyway. So when the government evaluated the paid parental leave scheme, they found that 77% of people were taking the amount of parental leave that the government had said was appropriate, the 18 weeks, prior to the introduction of the policy. Um, we saw that something like 17 to 20% of people still didn't take that amount of parental leave after the policy. And we do know, as, as, as we always see in these circumstances, government introducing a scheme will displace the private schemes that were in existence. And so now we have fewer companies that are enticed to offer their own parental leave scheme. But instead of any of that analysis being presented as part of this decision, it's, you know, this is this is money for, for people who, who really need it, quote unquote. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up from what you were talking about there, we're, we're starting to run out of time here um, in the budget bunker, running out of air, perhaps, um, is in relation to the debt. One of the figures that I found very interesting buried in the budget papers is that from 25-26, the interest payments on debt will be the seventh largest government spending program, uh, which will exceed things like assistance for families, the disability support pension, pharmaceutical benefits, the childcare subsidy. It's almost twice the amount of money that's going to be paid to job seekers at that point in time. Uh, we keep being told that this debt is effectively free. It's not free, is it? Oh, not not at all. And uh, this is effectively, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the pay parental scheme as well. Um, this uh, the the so the flow of debt and the repatriation of the debt represents an upward redistribution, which must also be tackled uh, as as part of structural budgetary reform, because after all. Uh, future generations will be paying for this exorbitant debt, uh, which is, you know, ethically and morally quite shameful. Um, but uh, the, the beneficiaries of uh, those whose uh, uh, borrowings will be repaid are essentially wealthy bondholders, uh, both domestically and uh, internationally. And as you've rightly pointed out, the, even the interest bill, uh, you know, there's an opportunity cost there. Uh, which could have been used, for example, you know, to actually reduce the overall size, help reduce the overall size of government spending, or uh, to uh, expend monies on more economically sort of productive pursuits. Don't forget that much of the Australian government debt and also that at the state and local level is being used to repay recurrent, recurrent spending, not, not uh, presumably uh, productive capital spending. Um, I, I think this is an indictment of the condition of Australian public finance. Uh, there's something that I'll definitely agree with. Uh, 
a couple of minutes to go. One thing that I'm really interested in in sort of closing with here, I think, is is sort of returning to that bigger picture issue. Um, the government has been criticised, or in some cases actually praised, for focusing the overwhelming focus of this budget is on the short term, um, six to twelve months. What sense do you get of of the longer term trajectory here? What is you know, is there anything that looks like a longer-term trajectory in terms of government spending, in terms of our attitudes towards the size and scope of government? Look, uh, in the absence of actual explicit reform and to be able to have an honest discussion uh, with citizen taxpayers, I really regret to say there doesn't actually seem to be much in this budget at all in terms of anticipating structural budget reform that reduces the relative size of government to appropriate levels. The size of government to now now is is too large. If you look at uh, look look at empirical studies, it's actually a drag on growth in the aggregate. Um, so there needs to be a discussion, hopefully starting in year one of the next government, whichever that might be, to actually have a serious discussion. Uh, even some of the uh, recommendations of the 2013-14 National Commission of Audit still relevant today. So we actually need to start having these discussions and to embed them within a broad discussion about the need for uh, deregulation and market-based flourishing so that, you know, people can actually self-sustain and, and to be able to look after themselves, uh, including in response to uh, unanticipated crises without first looking to, to government uh, to bankroll uh, for, uh, to, for the resolution of emergencies, but uh, essentially sending the bill to our children and grandchildren who didn't consent. You, you, to push back on that a little bit, um, from a devil's advocate perspective, I suppose, the, the coalition came into government back in 2013, um, promising to end the age of entitlement. Um, I, I think that at a, they would argue that they attempted to do so in the 2014 budget. That was very roundly criticised and rejected by certainly the commentariat, arguably by the electorate as well. They have, during the course of their time in government, uh, prior to the pandemic, they brought the budget almost back into balance. Do you think that the legacy, if this is indeed the last coalition budget for this government, if is their legacy one of failing the challenges of fiscal consolidation or were they just mugged by circumstances? Um, I, I have to say that the, the circumstances are very much well known. You know, if you take a public choice, even basic political science perspective, that uh, constituencies will formulate, which will try to resist any attempt at reform of the budget. So those circumstances are known. Um, I'd very regretfully say that uh, the budgets over the last 10 years, not with, notwithstanding some meaningful and genuine attempts at reform, have largely been unliberal in character, which have contributed to a growth in relative size of government, uh, which is uh, the, the last thing that Australia will need post-crises uh, to be able to ensure that all Australians are able to flourish uh, economically, culturally and, and socially as well. So uh, the, the, the maybe history might not look so kindly uh, upon uh, the, the last uh, terms of government, but we, we shall see. Michaela Novak, thank you so much for joining us today in this very special 
on Liberty from the CIS Budget Bunker. It's fantastic to get someone with such a depth and breadth of historical knowledge and understanding of, of basically how we got here rather than just the, the sort of hot take culture where, where everyone talks about uh, the last five minutes as if it's the first five minutes of history. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Michaela. It's always a great honour to talk to you, Simon, and thank you for welcoming me in the bunker. Fantastic. And look, thank you very much to the viewers for allowing me to host uh, in place of Salvatore today. As I said, Salvatore has got an event on his new book on universities being launched tonight. That's definitely worth a look if you haven't already picked up his book. Uh, we've got a number of other events coming up in the near future as well. You can hear me interviewing uh, Joe Hockey, Treasurer Joe Hockey. I will be asking him about his perspective on these issues in an event coming up in two weeks' time. Otherwise, be sure to tune in to On Liberty next week with your regular host. That's Simon Cowan signing off from the CIS Budget Bunker. Thank you again for joining us.